Hi, this is Gary Meese, back again with the case against. I'm going to be talking today about Jason Baldwin. Uh, I'm going to read chapter 10 of my book, The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. And, uh, you know, um, let me say f several things about Baldwin before I get into material in the book, and there may be a little repetition here, but uh, Baldwin, and particularly in the, the, in the movies, gives this impression of being this little pink-cheeked, pink-cheeked pink, pink child, really. I mean, he looks like a little kid. He looks like he's about 12 years old, not shaving. Uh, you know, just wide-eyed and you know, definitely in over his head. And he, he was definitely in over his head with the, the, the murder case. Uh, in fact, he's probably in over his head on just about all the time anyway. But uh, he, uh, he gives it, he, so people see him in the movie and they have this emotional reaction, which is, it's understandable, but the emotional reaction is, Look at this boy. He couldn't possibly have done this. Uh, Joe Berlinger is, you know, one of his stories about the West Memphis Three that he came to the conclusion they couldn't possibly have done this was based on the uh, an encounter uh, an encounter with Baldwin where he sees his little pipe stem arms and he thinks, oh, this could couldn't possibly have done the things that he did. Well, there's no proof, there's really no evidence that Jason Baldwin was uh, particularly weak or he was incapable of welding a knife um, as he did in, in the killings. He, does, he is an unlikely looking suspect, but so there, there are other unlikely looking suspects. I hate, I hate to keep throwing these names out all the time, but does Ted, did Ted Bundy look like the killer that he was? Did David Berkowitz? No. In fact, people remarked upon that those two individuals, oh, they don't look like they could have done this. Jeffrey Dahmer? No. I would say uh, John Wayne Gacy? Look just like you know your typical average uh, Chicago resident, <laughs> middle-aged to Chicago resident, which in, in a lot of ways he was. Uh, but he was also uh, a cold-blooded killer. Uh, individuals who have a condition known in various by various labels, and it cha they're changing all the time, and I haven't checked the la latest on the DSM manuals, but, you know, they, sometimes they're called sociopaths, sometimes they're called psychopaths, sometimes they're, they're, they're diagnosed with antisocial uh, disorder, and other times, you know, other things go on, I guess. But those have, seem to be the big three labels there. Uh, but when it gets right down to it, is people have very little or no conscience, and it's not that they're not cognitively aware aware of what 
is right and wrong. They just simply don't particularly care. You know, they're not so stupid that they don't understand that. They just particularly don't care. Now, lots of them choose not to get into the sort of crime that we're talking about here, the murders of Michael Moore, Christopher Byers and Stevie Branch on May 5th, 1993 in West Memphis, Arkansas. People, well, the truth is, is very, very few people have ever embarked on that particular sort of crime in that particular style. In fact, it may be unique, uh, but perhaps, you know, that that's, that's a str- bit of a stretch because obviously the world's a big place. It's been around for a long time, and perhaps there's someplace else where uh, three, three young, uh, young teenagers encountered three little boys in the woods and just killed them just because they felt like doing it that particular day, thought it was going to be fun. And, uh, you know, and then hid them away and they were discovered. You know, Leopold and Loeb uh, were uh, a notorious case. It was really very similar uh, in terms of the dynamics. Uh, my friend Joshua Diaz just did a, a piece on the Columbine killers and Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were... Uh, you know, they formed what, uh, sometimes known as a, as a, a dyad. They, you know, they become, but the two of them together are greater than the sum of their parts. And I, and I pretty sure I get into this with, uh, my, my book, but, uh, what happened with Eccles and Baldwin is they fed off each other. Uh, would either one of them alone have ever done what they did? Probably not. Damien was uh, unstable and violent and certainly capable of hurting somebody, certainly tried to hurt people, and uh, but he seemed to lack the, 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 the courage to actually go through with the crimes, uh, this sort of crime, some sort of cold-blooded crime. Uh, Jason Baldwin... Uh, and to my mind, just really just didn't particularly care that much. I mean, he, he really tried. He liked people patting him on the back and saying he's a good boy, and he, play, he played the role very well. He still plays the role very well. To my mind, it's a role that he's playing. It has nothing to do with the real Jason Baldwin, who really, you know, will happily take advantage of you to my mind. He's taking advantage of people as we speak with his proclaimed justice organization in Austin, Texas. Uh, it's got, and it's got the facade of, of something that is, you know, actually doing some sort of good work and helping. Uh, it's the facade of, you know, it's one of these innocence projects. Which I, you know, honestly, the, this whole innocence project thing, there are actually people there are people who are wrongfully convicted and it's good that they have the dna the dna evidence dna uh tools now so they can look at old dna evidence and maybe get some people out of jail who really don't need to be there 
Though in many cases, they're in jail for, they, they were rapists, they just didn't perform that particular rape that they were convicted for and sent to jail for. But be that as it may, uh, you know, there's some people who are just really innocent. They need to be out of jail. I, I think all of us can agree on that. But it's basically it's been hyped up as something more than it, it is. The, the Innocence Project is experiencing the, uh, the effect of diminishing returns on their investment in DNA testing. Relatively few prisoners avail themselves of who would be eligible, and we're talking about serious crimes, would be eligible for you know, further DMA, DNA testing. Relatively few prisoners seek that out. And many of those who seek that out end up, it, become, it, it, it becomes affirmed that, oh yeah, they did commit the crime. Are their DNA matched the same? And therefore we can determine, you know, on the basis of DNA, we're not gonna be letting these guys out. Um, what would happen with further DNA testing with the West Memphis Three, which seems inc increasingly unlikely to spot all the hype for, from Bob Ruff, uh, is that uh, it's not gonna happen. I didn't think it was gonna happen last year when Ruff uh, was making a lot of noise about that. Uh, he's got the, he's proclaiming this new technique could get results they couldn't get before, which is, as far as I can see, it's probably true. It's a shame they didn't have it back then. But you know, the case has already already run its course through the courts. The West Memphis Three were convicted, uh, and. They had an opportunity to present new DNA evidence in 2011 after going through uh, all sorts of things with the courts and legislators and so forth in Arkansas changed the law largely on the basis of that, this particular case. And so when it comes right down to it, what happens? Uh, you know, they chose instead of taking their so-called new evidence to court they decided to plead guilty instead, seek a plea bargain. Uh, you let us, if you know, if you let us out of jail, we'll plead guilty. Okay, that's not really an argument for innocence. And uh, and admittedly, you know, uh, from their standpoint, uh, you know, it's 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 easy to understand. Hey, I'm in jail. Here's my chance to get out. It's it's an easy, it's it's kind of a no-brainer in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'll do it. What's not a no-brainer is that, you know, particularly in Baldwin's case, the evidence against, evidence against him, if they had just all this evidence and it was really, really, really good evidence, they have really good evidence against the West Memphis Three. It's a question of whether they had really good evidence that they could bring back to the courts again. And that was very questionable, particularly in the case of Jason Baldwin. Uh, you can certainly justify his conviction in a legal sense on the basis of a, of a confession that he made to Michael Carson. Other than that, his, and the fact that he's friends with Eccles, other than that, there's not a really strong, strong case in the court, in the 
actual courtroom that was being made against Jason Baldwin. It's understandable his attorney was just hoping that the, the jury would just see things his way and said, oh, they didn't really prove the case against this. We're going to let this kid go. <laughs> We're going to convict the other kid but let this kid go because Damien looked very guilty and acted very guilty, and they had, uh, you know, a sighting of him, you know, uh, walking away from the scene, and uh, there were uh, there were numerous other little things that, you know, he, he uh, gave an interview, he gave interviews where he sounded guilty, and, you know, and we don't want to even go into stuff that wasn't in the courtroom, uh, and he made, uh, you know, he, again, he made a confession. You can talk about how good or bad it was, but he made a confession to, in front of a bunch of people at a softball game, and just from a strictly legal standpoint, if you want to take that as proof of guilt beyond reasonable doubt, you can do that and convict him for that and sentence him. I think it would be very foolish to do it on that basis alone. However, there was other evidence. The um, <coughs> you know also uh, I'm I'm wandering far afield now, but Jason uh, Jason didn't have that sort of evidence against him. He opted to take this deal and make himself out to be some sort of martyr so he could somehow save Damien's life. Damien wasn't going to be dying in the, um, uh, the death chamber in Arkansas anytime soon. Uh, as long as his appeals were going through the courts, uh, they, you know, he was not in any danger of execution. And the truth is, with a high-profile, controversial uh, case like that, uh, the state's going to be, no, they're not going to put him high on the list of people they want to go through, what they have to go through to, to get people executed. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, I, I think back to a case and I know I'm really dating myself here, but a case, uh, a murder that I helped cover, and I covered the murder trial back in 1976. The guy's still in jail in Mississippi. He's, on, he's been on death row up there. He's had four different trials. And no, there's no doubt that he did it. He's had four different trials, and he's still, he's still in, in death row last time I checked. So, uh, Gerald Jordan, look at it, look him up. Uh, and he was a, you know, I saw him in court. He's a very affable sort, joking with the, the guards and so forth. Uh, he seems to have gotten along well with people in prison. He certainly didn't seem scary in the courtroom. I mean, I, and I was in there for, with him for, you know, days at a time during his, during his trial. And, and some motions as well. And, you know, some people give off a really bad vibe. He didn't do that at all. Jason Baldwin doesn't do that at all either. He comes across as being this, you know, nice guy. He wants to come across as being this nice guy. And he succeeds for the lar to a large extent in doing that. I want to say again that, you know, he's got this organization 
proclaim justice. And it sounds like he's doing good work. If you actually look what he's done, he's most, mostly made himself a little job. He's got a little office. He's got himself some prestige. He's got a little money for his friend, a little bit of money for salaries for, and for him and his friend John Harden. Uh, they, got, they get to cover travel expenses and entertainment and get to do things together and drink beer together and... You know, as as far as actually doing a whole lot of work, it's not really evident on the basis of the statements that they've filed with the state. And I haven't checked the 2020 statements, but I've seen the other ones. He's not; they're not doing a whole lot of work on the basis of anybody except themselves. It's covering themselves. Uh, they have; they didn't post any current ca any cases of any note for the longest time uh, they had uh, um, they had a case of Daniel Viega in, in Texas as if they really had something to do with that the guy was tried I think I think the third or fourth time he was tried he, he finally got off well you know if you try somebody often enough and enough time goes by enough witnesses go away you know, maybe you'll get an exoneration, and that's what happened. But, uh, you know, he, he had somebody with deep pockets helping him out, uh, uh, so, so, sort of an in-law in El Paso. So he, he, you know, he got out that way, and then Jason Baldwin shows up, gets his picture taken with Daniel Viega like he really had something to do with it. Hey, correct me if I'm wrong, Jason Baldwin, show me what you actually did for the case besides, you know, uh, show up for the picture. Maybe you bought the guy lunch when he got out. Maybe you helped him find an apartment. But, you know, you didn't win the case for him. You didn't win his freedom for him. And stop acting as if you did. At best, you maybe you helped him out. And, you know, if you want to run an organization that helps pe people who are newly out of prison, Good for you. That's actually like a great plan. These guys need help getting out of prison. Uh, uh, just try to stay on the straight and narrow if they're so inclined. And, uh, you know, that would be a great organization for you to be a part of and even run if you would actually do the work, which I doubt if you would. But, you know, let's, let's, let's assume that you did give you the benefit of the doubt. But in this case, you didn't, you didn't win his freedom. And then he had, for the longest time, he had Tim Howard up there, one of Mara Leverett's favorite cases from Arkansas. Well, he acted as if he had something to do with Daniel, uh, Tim Howard getting out of uh, prison in Arkansas. I, I, it's hard to see how he would have had much to do with that. Tim Howard was not exonerated. He was paroled after he'd been in prison for something over 25 years. It's not that uncommon for people to serve a long time in prison and be let out. People who follow the West Memphis Three case don't seem to understand that that happens in some, in cases, in some cases with people who have committed really horrible crimes, such as one of the members of the Chicago Ripper uh, gang got out of prison on a parole after being in prison for many, many years.
but he got out. Should he have gotten out? You know, I'm not going to second guess the parole board up there, but I would think probably not. But, you know, some guy gets to be in his 50s or so. He's probably, unless he is a, a hardcore serial killer or a very da you know, dangerously uh, mentally ill sociopath, psychopath, he's probably not going to do anything that's going to really cause a lot of problems. He's going to have a hard time adjusting when he gets out, but maybe he'll just mind his own business. He ages out after a period of time. Um, that's what's happened. That's probably what's happened to the West Memphis Three to a certain extent. They get out of prison. They're almost they're on the cusp of middle age, and they, you know, they're past the time, and they're not in in this dynamic with Damien and Jason feeding off each other. And, you know, they've managed to stay mostly out of trouble. I don't think they've fulfilled their conditions of their parole, but Scott Ellington is, you know, just a weak, pathetic uh, individual who was perfectly willing to just to go along with whatever he could get away with with this case as long as it didn't bother him too much. And that's what happened with the West Memphis Three and the parole violations because they, they weren't holding down jobs. They weren't doing a lot of the things or going to school. They weren't doing a lot of the things they were supposed to do. Uh, certainly, you know, it, it's particularly clear with, with Damien and, and uh, Miss Kelly that there were some paro serious parole violations that they just didn't bother to do anything with. Uh, Baldwin less so. He seemed to try to cover himself. He seems to have actually held a, held some jobs at various points, which is more than you can really say about the other two. And so, but you know, for the last several years now, he's got this gig. Now, after we get past Viega and uh, Tim Howard, we get, uh, he's latched on to Nikki Zing, there's a Nikki Zinger case, and I can't remember the other, the, the guy that she's in prison with, but that case is just sort of old. It's not going to be going anywhere. Uh, and he latched on to uh, a case with three guys, three guys from West Memphis who were involved in this murder that happened really with almost within, probably within sight of the, of the Robin Hood Hills where the murders of these three boys occurred. <coughs> it was certainly the same neighborhood. It was in the um, apartment complex there, the uh, Mayfair Mayfair Apartments. Anyway, um, I am going to. Uh, oh, and you know, then I see see something that this uh, this podcaster is going to have Jason on to help help her out with you know investigating this this case. She's reinvestigating, which has been kicked around uh, for quite some time, and, you know, it doesn't look like it's going anyplace either, and, you know, listen to the first couple of episodes, and it was sort of rehashing stuff that's already been rehashed many times. Is there any clear evidence that the guy's innocent? No. Is it a possibility he didn't do it? I guess so. It's a possibility, you know, it's a possibility that uh, Ted Bundy and Charles Manson and uh, John Wayne Gacy and 
uh, David Berkowitz didn't commit their crimes either. That was they were all just very very unlucky men. We know better. We know how foolish it would be to actually assert that. They try that in their own defense and trial in some cases, but you know the truth is is you know get enough evidence against somebody, circumstantial evidence. Uh, and you can conclusively draw the correct result that they are guilty, and that's what happened with the West Memphis Three. Now, I'm going to read from my book, The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. This book's available on Kindle uh, and and in in the text in. Uh, on, on the Amazon site, it's a cond condensed, revised, uh, streamlined, and arguably more readable version of a larger, more complete, and at times slightly unwieldy, but, you know, I did try to craft stories, get some sort of narrative going in each individual chapter of the two books that the, this book was drawn from, Blood on Black and Where the Monsters Go. Those books are also available on Amazon. And now I'm going to read from chapter 10. As a slightly built teen interested in art and music, Jason Baldwin seemed an unlikely murder suspect, but aside from being blood brother to a blood drinker, Baldwin had a troubling history. Baldwin first was placed on probation when he was 11. And it's a little obscure about what that was all about, but this is what he stated himself. Uh, at age 12, Jason, his brother Matt, and several other boys broke into a building. Uh, they broke out windows on antique autos and wrecked the place. And this was a kind of a variously described as a shed or something out in a field and uh, outside Marion, Arkansas. Now, Jason says, oh, well, you know, these were old abandoned cars. They didn't really do anything. This was too, you know, wasn't any big deal. They made a big deal out of something that wasn't a big deal. Uh, the fact is that they were charged with breaking and entering and criminal mischief. And, uh, John Fogelman, who was the assistant prosecutor in the West Memphis Three case, also prosecuted this case and recommended that the boys be placed in reform school for two years. And they were placed on probation. Uh, Gail Grinnell, Jason's mother, was ordered to pay a fine of $450 each for her boys. Family members portrayed this as an unfair burden on poor, hardworking mom, uh, Jason Baldwin claims, you know, he they didn't have Christmas for several years. His mom actually was paying off, you know, this debt to the system. But according to records, she only paid $10 of the fine. $30 of the fine. Excuse me. Misread that. Uh, obviously, it would have been a very poor Christmas if $30 was going to wreck their Christmas anyway. Though no doubt $30 seemed like a lot of money to Gail Grinnell. 
she argued that this was, you know, very unfair and they were picking on her boy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Jason got into trouble again at age 15 when he shoplifted potato chips and M&Ms from Walgreens in West Memphis. He was placed on diversion of judgment for a year with stipulations that he stay in school and out of trouble. And, you know, uh, this is what was going on with Jason at the time of the killings. Is, you know, he, he was asked to skip school that day by Damien. They thought he was going to, but he went to school anyway, and one reason is because he didn't want to get, he didn't want to draw that kind of attention. He didn't want to get in trouble. In that sense, he was somewhat conscientious and uh, even and, you know pretty savvy. I will I will stipulate that shoplifting some potato chips and M and M's from a from a drug from a Walgreens is not exactly a, a big crime, and it's not. And I will also stipulate that it's not unusual for teenagers, in particular, to. Uh, do this sort of thing. They're they're you know they get some autonomy. Their impulse control is not what it should be, or ideally would be if they were. They're not adults. They're still kids on some level. And so you know he they see see easy pickings and they think they can get away with it and they often do, but they often get caught too. It's not that unusual, and it's not that big a deal, but it's not as if he'd never been in trouble, which is what some people assert. <clears throat> and meanwhile, his family life was in turmoil. Jason's mother had made four trips to the Crittenden Memorial Hospital emergency room that January, and these were all <clears throat> related to her mental problems. Uh, she was treated for self-inflicted wounds to the neck and arms, and that and that's according to uh, Blood of Innocence, the book that uh, Guy Real, Mark Perisquia, and uh, Barth Bart, Sol Bart Sullivan wrote uh, back in nineteen. I think it was nineteen ninety-three. They ninety-three or ninety-four. They actually wrote that. It was a very early book on the case, somewhat overtaken by events and somewhat dated, but still a very good interesting read if you can find a copy it's out of print but you can find copies they're not hard to find uh gail grinnell uh, she's also known as angela so let's say her name is angela gail grinnell was having paranoid delusions and she was involuntarily committed to the east arkansas regional mental health center in february 1992 I think I have this wrong. I think it was 93. Around this time, um, I, don't, I didn't make a lot of errors in this book but, that I've ever caught, but perhaps that is one. I need to double-check that. Around this time, Dad, uh, their, their real father, Larry Baldwin, who had long been absent, showed up. And according to Marl Leverett's book on Jason Baldwin called Dark Spell, the boys told their mother they would consider living with their dad for a while. This reportedly prompted a suicide attempt via cutting her wrist. 
by Jason from Jason Baldwin's mother clarify that Jason wrote in a school assignment in April 1993 which is the month before the killings once my mother tried to commit suicide and I know how it felt when that happened it was pretty devastating since I was the one who found her and called 911 and kept her alive but my mother is well and happy now and so am I this is very typical Jason where he just sort of glosses over whatever's going on his mother didn't seem to be, has never seemed to be particularly well and happy. Uh, for that matter, Jason doesn't seem that well, even though he seems to, he, he's got a happy face all the time. Uh, but that's probably the mask of normality that we're seeing. In another writing assignment, Jason described a violent fight. I am usually a calm person and can take most of anything, but sometimes I get angry. When I do get angry, it is usually not a pretty sight. One time I had to babysit my two little brothers. One is eight and the other is 13. Remind you that uh, there were three eight-year-old boys in the woods. Jason, uh, Jason, we're going to find Jason had a lot of practice in handling smaller boys and how to... <coughs> How to take control of them. I let Matt, the 13-year-old, go outside to play or whatever he want, and I let Terry, the 8-year-old, have some friends over. That was a mistake. I let them go in my room and play Super Nintendo while I watched TV in the living room. I thought I had everything under control, but I was wrong. Those kids got to fighting over the game and tore everything up in my room. It was a mess. I couldn't believe it. I made them clean up everything and leave. Then Matt got home griping as usual and started aggravating me. <coughs> he would run up and hit me and say, you can't hit me back, I'll tell mom. So I said, tell mom boy, cause you're fixing to get it. I ran over there and grabbed him into a chokehold and held him there till his face turned bright red and then let him go. I said, mess with me again and it'll be worse, so he picked up a broom and tried to hit me with it. I grabbed the handle, pulled it a little ways, and then pushed and it knocked him down. He didn't do nothing else but say, I'm still telling. I said, so, and he did, and I got grounded for nothing. Now, there's some key elements to be taken from this story. Uh, one thing is Jason bottled up angry bottled up anger until it exploded. He, uh, he was resentful over having to babysit his brothers, pretty obviously. Um, one of his brothers gives it, you know, tears stuff up. He and his friends tear stuff up. The other, <coughs> the other brother comes in and pesters him. And, you know, they get into a brawl. And he ends up choking Excuse me. <coughs> he ends up choking uh, Matt. There's a fatter family pattern of violence here. Jason was used to handling defiant younger children. Jason felt he was not treated fairly. Where have we heard this before? And Jason expressed no remorse. 
In other words, he got grounded for nothing, according to him, and he got grounded for nothing except choking and knocking down his little brother. Their mother's marriage to Terry Ray Grinnell was shaky, marred by, marked by violent arguments over Terry's drinking. Jason often had to call the police, and this is according to Marl Everett's book, Dark Spell, and his stepfather often slapped not only their mother, but Jason and Matt. A lot of family violence going on here. You get the, get the picture? In the spring of 1993, Jason confronted his stepfather. I took that little bat and I hit Terry with it. He hit the ground. I opened the door and said, leave. This is what Baldwin described in Dark Spell. So, Jason just weeks or months before he uh, handled, you know, these three little boys in the woods. And he has these so-called little pipe stem arms where he couldn't possibly do anything. We've already learned that, you know, he has a 13-year-old brother, and he didn't seem to have any trouble uh, taking care of him and, you know, immobilizing him, overpowering him on two and two occasions very close together <coughs> he didn't seem to have any trouble <coughs> using a, a bat on his stepfather hitting him with it knocking him to the ground and basically you know and then ordering him out of the house this is not jive with the image that he's got in and the, the Paradise Lost movies are that he's had he's projected since, but this is who Jason was. He's not what he seems. Uh, so anyway, Terry Grinnell was out of the house. Soon Dink Dent moved in. Dent had a lengthy rap sheet that included multiple counts of larceny, burglary, and auto theft. And Dink Dent gave, uh, was Gail Grinnell's new boyfriend. Gave some very valuable information about Jason Baldwin to police. Uh, described him. He has no reason to try to implicate Jason. Uh, he's not in the relationship with uh, Gail Grinnell anymore when he does this. He gives a very detailed description of what happened that day, and, the, and there were some uh, May, May 5th, 1993, and there were some markers for him because he was in the process of breaking up with uh, Jason's mother. Again, evidence of more tensions in the home. You know, mentally ill mother, drunken stepfather has to be run out of the house with the bat. Here comes a a chronic criminal and mom and the chronic criminal aren't getting along too well and Jason's going to be stuck doing a lot more babysitting which he obviously resents um, so we have that a lot of bad judgment on the uh, 
Grinnell side here. Uh, one key to Baldwin's character was his friendship with Damien Eccles. It's, it's not an aside. It's not a side issue. It's not nothing. Baldwin has acknowledged Eccles and his mother were mentally ill. <coughs> what he hasn't explained was his camaraderie with the weird, sinister Eccles. Criminal, criminologist Stanton Samnow in uh, Inside the Criminal Mind, it's a pretty interesting book. It's a fairly standard text for those who want to know more about the criminal mind. He states, criminals seek one out one another for their own purposes. In radar-like fashion, they hone in on others who have similar interests. They are not enticed into crime against their will. <coughs> if a basically responsible youngster makes an unwise choice and misjudges another youth who he discovers is up to no good, he will eventually extricate himself from that situation and most likely from the entire relationship. So we see we have these we have responsible use have, have, they may they have this friendship that they form and they don't really know what all's going on with this this other kid that they made this friendship with and then they discover oh well you know he's got he wants us to do this this and this yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that. You know, I certainly I wasn't enticed into killing anybody when I was a teenager, but you know, I I I can think of a few times where I was friends with somebody, I seemed to be friends with somebody and then you know, and then it turns out, you know, this this kid isn't really what I thought he was. And I wasn't, you know, it's not even that I was that averse to getting into some mischief, but you know, I had a line I wasn't going to cross, and it, was, it wasn't as if I was going to, you know, it's not as if I was going on shoplifting sprees or, or anything like that, you know. It had more to do with smoking cigarettes and drinking and so forth, and I would do that sort of stuff, but, you know, uh, knocking down stop signs or uh, mailboxes or, uh, you know, other... I don't even get into all the other stuff you can get into when you're a teenage boy, but, you know, some of it's pretty bad. You can get into a whole lot of trouble when you're a teenage kid if you choose to do that. And, I, you know, basically I extricated myself from those situations. Um, and as I say, I wasn't trying to be a particularly goody-goody kid at the time. I just didn't want to get into that much trouble. Jason Baldwin had no trouble uh, no trouble hanging out with Davian Eccles. They fed off each other. They watched the same horror movies. They joked about torturing and killing uh, bombs. They and they actually went out and caught pets, caught animals, and tortured them and killed them. And without conscience, the disturbing world of the psychopaths among us. Another very well-respected criminologist, really somebody who's considered the gold standard on uh, sociopathy, 
Robert Hare, he explained, social, uh, psychopaths are social predators who charm, manipulate, and ruthlessly pile their way through life, leaving a broad trail of broken hearts, shattered expectations, and empty wallets. Completely lacking in conscience and in feelings for others, they selfishly take what they want and do as they please, violating social norms and expectations without the slightest sense of guilt or regret. Jason Baldwin and Damien Eccles were two of a kind, and they certainly seem to have charm manipulated and ruthlessly plow their way through life. Jason's looking, you know, his most of his work in his proclaimed justice <coughs> organization, at least the public face of it, has been, let's raise some money. It's not even clear what they're raising money for, except maybe to pay the rent, pay his salary, keep the doors open. You know, it's not. It's, you know, it's it's really very questionable. It's very questionable how much good Damien, uh, Jason Baldwin's going to do any of these people. He's he calls his cases. Uh, they're in prison. They're. They're not going, if they go anywhere, it's going to be because they got paroled out. It's not because of anything Jason Baldwin's going to do. I don't know how you reinvestigate a, a very, sadly enough, a very typical sort of murder uh, with a couple of guys who are, you know, criminally inclined guys, shoot another criminally inclined, inclined guy, they get caught. They do time, and it's 30 years ago, and you're somehow going to come up with some new evidence that's going to release them. You couldn't have done it at the time. You're certainly not going to do it 30 years later. And I'm coughing. I apologize. <coughs> it's one reason I hold off on doing podcasts because uh, I think, well, my throat's better. And then this sort of thing happens, and I just have to have to suffer through. I'm not going to try to re-record, though I would be tempted to. But uh, I've been kind of off on a rap, a, a, a rap, or, or maybe you prefer to call it a rant, but whatever. Today, that uh, I'm not sure I could replicate again. Uh, I know I couldn't replicate it exactly or even close to it. I might be able to cover most of the points, but I really had a lot on my mind with, with the, the Jason Baldwin situation. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've gotten tired of seeing his ridiculous face popping up in various social media places that I follow. And, uh, you know, with always with this very vacuous, empty uh, sort of promise that he's doing something when really he's not, doesn't seem to be doing a whole lot. Prove me wrong. Lay it all out there. If you look at his expenses and what he spent over the last, you know, the first couple of years of his uh, organization's life, really wasn't on, most of the money was not going to do anything except what I've talked about already. Pay him, pay two people salaries, keeps the door, keep the doors open, 
pay for their travel, pay for their entertainment, and, you know, pay for whoever was getting money for handling their books, etc., etc. Anyway, enough, enough for me today. Before I start hacking again, I'm going to sign off, and hopefully this all worked, and 